Thank you, Tony. Uh, have known Tony uh, for a long time. Appreciate him very much, and I know you all do. Just um, look at this great congregation here, and he's served you for 30 years, and uh, appreciate the good work that you've done here, Tony, and not only here but in the um, other parts of the kingdom. Uh, I think I was here about three years ago. I'm glad to be back uh, tonight. I have some good friends uh, with uh, uh, me and my wife tonight, John and Beth Pig. John's a uh, great gospel preacher in Mississippi. Uh, we've been, we uh, became friends at Free Hardeman in 1967, and I uh, highly recommend him to you if you need a, a good speaker for a gospel meeting. He'd be the one to call. He does a great job. He's uh, helped on the Free Hardeman lectureship as well as Tony has from time to time, and I appreciate uh, them doing that. All right, well, my assigned topic tonight is postmodernism, and um, that's um, is kind of a challenging topic to talk about. Uh, quite honestly, I can tell you there's some other subjects that I'd like to talk about tonight, but this is a subject that's profoundly important. It's very, very important, and it influences us in ways that we're really uh, unaware of. Instead of trying to give you an exact definition of it, I want to try to illustrate it. It's everywhere, as you can see on the slide. Uh, for example, in television. One of my favorite uh, shows is Gunsmoke. I'm a Gunsmoke guy. I've got 229 episodes recorded, um, and Ms. Light knows not to delete those episodes. <clears throat> she says it's really not fair that I occupy so much of the, uh, that space, but at any rate... Um, in Gunsmoke, how many of you uh, know what I'm talking about, Gunsmoke fans? All right, everybody. So this is a good illustration here. In Gunsmoke, there was clarity in morality. You knew what was right, and you knew what was wrong. For example, uh, Matt was bringing in uh, an uh, old friend of his one time who was actually serving as a uh, law officer, and he had uh, strayed. Uh, from the uh, right course and had committed some offense. I can't remember what it is. And so they were sitting around the fire one night as they were on their way back to Dodge. And they, <clears throat> this old friend of Matt says, well, Matt, you could just let me go. And Matt says, no, I can't do that. That's against the law. And so you have that over and over. When you watch those episodes, just notice the clarity of morality. Over and over, you'll have the, the theme, and I think they do a, a really good job in that old show, you know, of showing that here are some things that are right, here are some things that are wrong. Now, by the time you get to Frazier, uh, there's a big transition in moral value. And what's interesting about uh, Frazier is this conventional sexual morality is not maintained. I saw a few of those episodes. I can tell you it is not maintained. Uh, but there was nevertheless an underlying moral tone. I mean, Frazier is struggling with what he ought to do or not. But then if you move on to Seinfeld, uh, a show that I have seen one episode of, I confess, you find that here's a show about nothing. That's the only way I know how to describe it. There's no moral fiber whatsoever. Uh, there's no thinking in terms of morality. And yet, that show tells a lot about our culture. And if you just, you know, look at it then from the transition from Gunsmoke, where here's things that are right, here are things that are wrong, all the way to uh, Seinfeld, you know, where <clears throat> there's no moral fiber whatsoever. It's also seen in expert opinion. Uh, <clears throat> truth anymore is not objective 
uh, something that can be understood more and more completely. Uh, today, truth is what's true for me. And so it doesn't matter what the expert says. It, it's about what's true for me. Now, let me say this. That applies to some things like matters of taste, for example, for, uh, to, to illustrate. Uh, for Ms. Light, uh, asparagus would be something good to eat. That would be true for her, all right? That has never been true for me, nor will it ever be true for me, all right? But you see, we're, we're talking there about matters of taste. We're not talking about objective uh, truth. And so when it comes to expert opinions anymore, uh, the idea basically is that, well, my opinion is just as good as yours. <clears throat> I mean, here's someone, perhaps, Tony, who has studied to the Ph.D. level in a certain field, say it's in the Old Testament uh, studies or whatever, and then you can have a freshman uh, come into college, and the view anymore is, is that what this freshman's particular opinion is about an Old Testament passage is just as um, true or significant as the opinion of this man who has you know, spent half of his life you know, studying the passage. It's seen also in structure and order. There was a time in our society where um, <clears throat> there were, uh, for lack of a better expression, blue-collar workers, white-collar workers. We knew the distinction. Um, there were certain professionals who were dressed as doctor. Uh, some men were dressed as sir and so forth, but that's not the case anymore. Casual is the order uh, of the day. All right, let's look at the next one. Um, I've been in academics for uh, it, on teaching on um, uh, the collegiate level for 38 years, and I've seen it in grade inflation. There was a time when an A was a very distinctive grade. I mean, it represented something. It represented uh, achievement uh, to the degree of excellence. But now the A and the B range is so crowded, it's difficult to discern, you know, the truly outstanding work, you know, from that work which is merely good. Now, what is the effect of this? The effect is a leveling of the academic uh, population, opinions of truly excellent students, as I just said, and those of little above average are treated uh, equally. And so here are just a few examples uh, that I've seen. I, and um, I want to use one other illustration to show the seriousness of what we're talking about tonight. Let's say uh, that you have uh, a child who is vomiting and running a high fever. You rush this child to the hospital, and three physicians examine uh, the child. One physician, let's call him Dr. Jones, says your child has viral meningitis and must be put into isolation immediately and treated with powerful antibiotics. So here's a physician who's saying this child is seriously ill. Um, <clears throat> otherwise, this child is going to die. Now, Dr. Smith says, oh, your child has a 24-hour bug and simply needs an injection to bring his fever down. Take him home and don't worry about it. And then Dr. Brown uh, examines him and says, well, there are two different ideas about your child's illness, and who am I to say who is right? I suggest that we be guided by love and agree to respect one another's opinion. Now, that's postmodernism. Now, what would be your reaction to this? Your reaction to this would be the same reaction that I would have. You wouldn't be satisfied. You would say... We want to know the truth. 
We want to know what's wrong with this child. And the same thing is true when it comes to, you know, religion. You see, it makes a difference what we believe. We want to know what is the truth. But the unfortunate thing is, this is the ridiculous situation that we are in in our society today. And we see it in practically every phase of, of our lives. So what it boils down to really is um, what um, is truth? Uh, what does the Bible say about truth? Now I want to give you uh, some different views uh, about truth. First of all, in John 18:38, you remember that Pilate uh, raised the question, what is truth? So that's an important question to ask. What is truth? There are different views of truth. One view is called uh, the correspondence theory of truth. Now, that's really rather simple. It says basically this. <clears throat> the truthfulness of a proposition, a sentence, depends on whether uh, that proposition corresponds with reality. Now, let me just give you an example. The sun is shining outside. That's a, that's a statement, all right? Well, is that a true statement or not? Well, hello, let's go outside and see if the sun is shining, all right? If the sun is shining, that's a true proposition. You see, it corresponds with reality. And that's, that's the concept of truth that uh, the Bible upholds. Now, there's another theory of truth called coherence. And what this says is the truthfulness of a statement depends upon whether it is um, in agreement or can, is consistent with other statements. And while that might be a good test of truth, I don't think it's a good criterion of truth because all of the statements could be false. You see, the whole system, you know, could uh, uh, be incorrect. And then another view of truth is what is called the pragmatic theory. And this says that a statement is true if it works. Uh, is it practical? Uh, is it uh, something uh, which helps you, uh, you know, function in a particular, you know, way or what? Well... The Bible claims, as I said, a correspondence theory of truth. It claims to deal with reality and to represent it correctly. Uh, Jesus makes it clear that the Bible is a dependable source uh, uh, on all matters that pertain to life and uh, godliness, as Peter brought out clearly in 2 Peter chapter 1 and in verse 3. Now, go ahead, Tony. Let's, no, I'm sorry. Leave it right there. Uh, biblical truth is objective. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's independent of my mind. It is, um, it's, um, it's objective. It's, um, it's truthfulness is not dependent upon what I think about it. Uh, just think about um, a few, a few uh, examples. The stories of the plagues in the Old Testament, the Exodus, uh, Jesus' miracles, the Lord's death, His resurrection... You know, some people today are claiming that, well, these are true if you profit from them. Well, let me tell you something. Guess what? They're true, period. You see, no matter what you think about it, no matter what your mind, you know, might, um, uh, you know, think about it, no matter how you might regard it. So the, uh, the point is the objective reality of the uh, events of Scripture are not uh, they're not subjective. You know, they are real incidents. When the Bible says that Jesus died, He really died. When the Bible says that He arose from the grave, He really arose from the grave. 
It's not merely that, well, it's true if, it, if it's something that is interesting to you or it's true if you profit uh, from it. All of that is false. <clears throat> While the spiritual message, um, okay, let me back up. Some people would say, well, what's important is just the spiritual message. While the spiritual message is important, we need to remember that message is found in a historical setting. Tony, I don't know how many times I've run into people who would say, well, uh, we don't need to be worried about whether these details are true or not. But just think about it, brethren. Let's say uh, that uh, Moses made a mistake in uh, writing something uh, about the Exodus. Well, how do we know that there's not a mistake when it comes to um, uh, you know, other writings. How do we know he didn't make a mistake concerning uh, the institution of the Passover in Exodus chapter 12? You see, someone might say, well, you know, the Passover is a spiritual matter, but we're not really worried about, uh, you know, whether they really crossed the Red Sea or not. Well, we need to be concerned about that because if, it, if the Bible says they crossed the Red Sea, guess what? They crossed the Red Sea. And so the idea... Um, that uh, some subscribe to today is that, well, it's just the spiritual aspects which are significant, but the details are not important. That's just, uh, for lack of a better expression, in Mississippi we'd say that's just hogwash, you know, to be quite frankly, uh, frank about it. <clears throat> now here's, here's the reason why. Brethren, uh, <clears throat> listen to me. <clears throat> God cannot lie. Titus 1-2, the Bible says God does not lie. Hebrews 6-18 says God does not lie. 1 Samuel 15-29 says God does not lie. Now what does that mean? That means he tells what? The truth. He does not say in one place in the Bible X and another place in the Bible not X. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, well, <clears throat> um, you hold this and that's true for you. Uh, but Brother Tony over here can hold to something else, and that can be true for him. And my good friend Brother John out here, he can hold to something else, and that can be true for him. You see, that goes against the whole concept of the correspondence theory of truth, that a given statement corresponds with you know, reality. <clears throat> the Bible teaches, notice on the slide here, the Bible teaches that the truth can be transferred. Now, let's think about what that means. That means that you've got this thing called truth. It's a body of factual information about God and Christ and their will for us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and was buried and rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And so the truth can be transferred. The church um, is the pillar and the foundation of the truth, the ground of the truth in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. Now another thing that's important for us to look at in this study is <clears throat> the idea that, uh, that uh, Bible truth is absolute. A while ago I was trying to say at the beginning of our lesson that there was a time for, and I used television as an example, Gunsmoke in particular, when there were some things that were right and some things that were wrong. But today, it's more like just shades of gray. There's really no black and there's no white, <clears throat> but just different shades of gray. What that says is it's just all relative. 
that there's really nothing that's really right and really wrong. You see, there was a time when we could take this good book, brethren, and we could stand up and we could read Romans chapter 1 and we could say something like homosexuality is wrong. Is that right? No ifs, ands, or buts about it. It's wrong. Well, but now wait a minute, Brother David. That might just be wrong for you. See, that's postmodernism. It's not wrong for me. It's not wrong for them. Uh, you might not like it, but it, but they do. It's okay for them, and we need to be accepting of them. <clears throat> Which leads me to another point. We have a change in our society on what we mean by tolerant. Now, Tony, I'm a tolerant person. Let me tell you something. This is the United States of America. If you want to, in this country, um, <clears throat> if you want to believe in this religion, you can do it. Is that right? If you want to believe in that other religion, you can do that. Is that correct? Yes. If you want to fall down and worship a rock, you could do that, couldn't you? You could do that. You can do that in this country. And guess what? I am going to stand up here and say, you've got the right to do that. Are you right in doing it? No. You're wrong in doing it. Why? Because it goes against what this objective truth you know, teaches. But you ought to have the right you know, to do it. If you want to say, I don't believe in God, this is a country where you can say that. I think you're mistaken, you know, in making that judgment. But here's the thing. You see, here, here's my point. If you want to believe contrary to what the good book teaches, I am tolerant of you in that I allow you to do that. God even does that, doesn't he? Yes, he does. He allows us to believe what is wrong. He doesn't want us to, and I don't even want you to believe what is wrong, but I'm tolerant of you in the sense that I say, if you, if you want to go contrary to the Scriptures, I don't want you to, but I want you to know I still love you. I, I have uh, your uh, interest at heart. I have your welfare at heart. I want you to know God. I want you to be a child of God, and so forth. But let me tell you how tolerant to the word tolerance has changed in our society. Tolerance today means approval. You see, tolerance, the way I understand tolerance, means that if you want to uh, not believe the Scriptures, then I'm going to tolerate you. We disagree, but I'm going to tolerate you. I'm still going to be nice to you. I'm going to be kind to you. I'm going to pray for you, and so forth and so on. But tolerance today means approval. You see it all the time. It's constantly, you know, been redefined. So there's, there's no real right, no real wrong. But I want to see, show you a few examples uh, on the slide here <clears throat> to show you uh, what the Bible says about absolute truth. Notice that the Scriptures say, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be who go in thereat. Because straight is the gate and there is the way that leads to life, and few there be who find it. What do you think? You got a broad way and you got what? A narrow way. You got a wide gate and you got a straight gate. And depending on your life's choices, you're either going to go through, you know, one gate or the other. You see, what I'm saying is this passage makes it clear that we can choose between what's right and what's wrong. 
The gospel may not be heeded in that long passage in Romans 10 about the um, importance of preaching the word in order that people can believe it and so forth. Paul says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? What does that say? That says some people don't believe the gospel. So here's this thing out here called the gospel, the truth, and it's the right thing to believe in it, but some don't believe in it. Furthermore, we must not preach what is not the gospel. In Galatians chapter 1, I marvel that you're so soon removed from him who called you into the grace of Christ to another gospel, which is not another. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. What's Paul saying? He's saying there's this thing called the gospel, which is the truth, but there's this other thing called the perverted gospel. And we don't want you to believe that. We want you to believe this. So what is that telling us? That is telling us that we can choose between something that is right and something you know that is wrong. Or what about this passage? Some not believing the truth can be deluded. In 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter uh, 2. With all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send them a strong delusion that they should believe a lie. That, God, that they might be condemned who didn't believe the truth but took pleasure in unrighteousness. So here are some people you know, who did not believe the truth. They took pleasure in unrighteousness. They made a choice. You see, between one and the other, all right? The faith is worthy of defense. Jude 3, uh, contend for the faith. 1 Peter 3, 15, uh, give answer to every man uh, concerning the truth. We must abide in the teaching of Christ. The truth can be suppressed, Romans 1, 18. We can err from the truth. Brethren, what all of this is saying is that there's this, this, this entity, if you will, called truth. It's a body of information. It is objective. It's, it's separate from my mind. It, it is out here, uh, independent of me. It says what it says, no matter what I think about it, no matter how I might feel about it, no matter how I regard it. And it is something which is absolute. It is unchanging. It's not just relative for this time or for that time or just for this individual or for that individual. Another thing about truth that I think is important in this assignment that I've been given is that it is attainable. Uh, someone might say, well, uh, Brother Light, even if the Bible is God's word, our human understanding is such that we just cannot grasp it. Have you ever heard anybody say that? I have. They'll say we just can't grasp it. We cannot be sure. How can you be sure, Brother David, that you're interpreting that properly? I'm all right with that. Every time you study with someone, well, that's just your opinion. Let me tell you something. Mark 16, 16 is not that complicated. I got off of a plane one time after a five-hour flight, and I wanted to hear a certain lecture by a certain person. And um, I, he had just started, and I slipped in the back. And uh, I don't remember one thing he said except this. We just can't understand Mark 16, 16 today, you know, like the people did when they received, you know, that gospel. 
I guess I'm just proud that I'm just a little simple-minded. I thought it had a simple subject, he. I thought it had a simple verb, shall be saved. I thought it had a couple of clauses, didn't you? He who believes and he who is baptized shall be saved. Yeah, but now, are you sure... Are you sure you're interpreting that properly? Well, I'm thankful that I had an English teacher who made me diagram sentences until I was doing it in my dreams. And you got the subject over here and you got the verb over here and you got the modifiers. That's not complicated. It says what it says. It says that the one who believes and is baptized shall be saved. Yeah, but now, Brother David, that's just your opinion. Let me tell you something. That's not just my opinion. That's what the objective truth of God's Word says. And I can understand that. Just think about it, brethren. If if we're going to, and the good brother read John 8, 32, you shall know the truth. You see, that verse right there settles it. That ought to settle it once and for all. Jesus said, you can know the truth. So don't tell me I can't know the truth. Don't tell me there's not this thing out here called the truth. And don't tell me that my mind is such that I can't understand the truth. You see, there might I'll, I'll go to my grave not understanding some things. Every one of us will about biblical teaching. I think that's the nature of Scripture. I mean, after all, it's God's Word, correct? But do you think that God in heaven would give us a revelation that we couldn't understand? What does that imply about God Almighty? Just think about it. Who would be, would, would God not himself be guilty, you know, of having given us a revelation that we can't understand and, and then if we were condemned to hell forever, whose fault is that? It seems like it would fall back on God if he gave us a book that we couldn't figure out to start with. You see, that's nonsense. And so the truth is attainable. <clears throat> Look at these passages. Uh, where are they? I got off my subject here. Maybe a little bit. John 17. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also who believe on me through their word, that is the apostles' word, that they may all be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee. <clears throat> or what about this verse? Ephesians 5 and 17. Understanding what the will of the Lord is. Understanding what the will of the Lord is. How could one come to repentance if he couldn't know the truth? The Lord is not slack concerning His promise as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But how in the round world could a person repent if he couldn't understand what he's repenting of, you see? That's, that's ridiculous. It's a reflection on the wisdom of God to suppose that He gives us a revelation designed to save us that we couldn't figure out. And then finally, biblical truth must be obeyed. So what have we established? We've got this thing called the truth. Uh, the truth is objective. Uh, the truth is absolute. Uh, the truth is attainable. And it must be obeyed. That's what the good book says, 1 Peter 1 and 22, seeing you've purified your souls in what? Obeying the truth. Or James 1.18, of his own will he begat us. He begat us by the truth. And so biblical truth must be obeyed. Now, <clears throat> in light of this, let me ask you these questions. Or let me 
let me uh, phrase it differently. In light of what I've said, what about these claims? One's religious beliefs don't really matter as long as they're sincere. This claim really doesn't make sense um, at all. You might feel like it's good for you, but you might be um, sincerely wrong. Have we not learned that, you know, from Saul of Tarsus, Acts 26? You know, he said, I barely thought within myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus. Have we not learned that already? In light of what I've said, what if someone makes the statement, well, you know, after all, one church is just as good as any other church. If the church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. And in light of what I've said, what if someone says, well, one can really be saved even if they're not in the church. And hath put all things under his feet and given him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. Or, Ephesians 5 and 23, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church and the Savior of what? The body. Yeah, but Brother Dave, I just, I'm a spiritual person. Um, have you noticed this in our society today? The emphasis on being a spiritual person, but they don't want to have anything to do with, quote, organized religion. You know what that means? It reminds me of an uncle of mine who uh, said that uh, his religion was, was nature. He liked to deer hunt and hunt turkeys, and that was his religion. Well, he might have been religious about hunting deer and turkey. You know, the way we use the word religion sometimes. But let me tell you something. That religion is not sufficient, you know, for God Almighty. Why is that? Because in order to have a proper relationship with God, we've got to be in the body of Christ. What's, what did the Bible just say? Ephesians 5. He is the Savior of what? The body. What do you think? Is that so complicated? So what does it mean? If you're not in the body, hello, what do you think? You're not going to be part of the saved. Oh, but now wait a minute, Brother David. That's just, that's a little harsh. Uh, that's not too, um, uh, that's just not going to go over in today's society and so forth. We'll call it what you will. Just like a student asked me one day, said, uh, Brother David, what you going to do? You know, when they uh, classify speaking out against homosexuality uh, as a hate crime. I said, well, if they send me to jail, uh, at that time I was living in Henderson, and I pointed out the window. I said, you see that street out there? You go right down there, you turn one block, and it'll be out there on your left. I said, y'all come see me. I got my mind made up about it. Why? Because I know what the Bible teaches you see, this is, this is objective truth right here. I've made up my mind that I'm, I'm going to stand right here on it. I've, made, I've taken my stand. And I want to encourage you to do the same thing. And it starts with you confessing your faith that Jesus is the Christ. It starts with you repenting of your sins and being baptized. And when you do that, guess what? God in heaven adds you to His family. It's called the church, the body of Christ, that which is going to be saved. That's how it starts. 
And then my plea would be for you to continue throughout life for you to take the stand on biblical truth. If we can help you some way tonight, there are good brethren here. I know folks here, and there are good folks here. And they'll pray with you, and they'll pray for you. Would you let us know what we can do as we stand and as we sing?